This is the replay. Sports on the big screen. A podcast about the greatest sports movies of all time. I'm your host, Bruce Murray. If you're like me, you love baseball. It has a long and rich history. The incredible sense of nostalgia that baseball conjures up, as well as its place in history, is a big reason why the game is still so popular today. It's why baseball movies have always made an impression on audiences. A way to combine sports with a certain sense of time and place. Back in episode one of this season, we profiled the baseball film that took us back to 1943, to the creation of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. That movie, a league of their own. And by the way, if you haven't yet, make sure you go back and listen. Today, we profile another baseball movie that takes us back even further, 1919, the year that eight members of the Chicago White Sox were accused of throwing the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. The movie, Eight Men Out. The Black Sox scandal, as it became known, was one of the most infamous points in baseball history. It led to the National Baseball Commission being dissolved, and in its place, the appointment of the first ever commissioner of baseball, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Commissioner Landis would end up permanently suspending the eight men involved in the scandal, including shoeless Joe Jackson, who even today is considered one of the greatest baseball players of all time. The ruling, although severe, eventually helped baseball build its integrity, which had been questionable, to say the least, ever since the sport's early days. In fact, game-fixing had been exposed in big league games as early as 1865. Even the first modern World Series in 1903 was jeopardized by attempts from gamblers to bribe Boston American catcher Lou Krieger into game-fixing. Here's Jacob Pomerenke of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. You know, the culture in baseball in the 1910s and 1920s uh, was rampant with corruption. There was so much gambling going on, open betting at ballparks, including Fenway Park and Wrigley Field. Um, You could bet on any pitch, you know, anything uh, that was happening on the field. And so, you know, this is part of the culture of baseball at this time. And there were a lot of other scandals before and after 1919 World Series. And so this is part of the environment that was going on with the Black Sox scandal is the the White Sox players were looking around, watching other players, including some of their old teammates, uh, throw games, fix games and not get caught. And sometimes even when they got caught, they didn't get punished. As the story goes, certain members of the 1919 White Sox were particularly envious of the $10,000 payoffs rumored to have been given to players of the Chicago Cubs for throwing the 1918 World Series against the Red Sox. So this was kind of a uh, high-reward, low-risk proposition for them at this time to fix the World Series. They thought they were just going to get away with it, make some extra money, nobody would think twice, and they would move on to the next season, just like they had always done before. Heading into the 1919 season, the White Sox were the heavy favorites to win the World Series. They had won it only two years earlier and had largely the same roster, built around stars like Eddie Seacott, Lefty Williams, Eddie Collins, and Shoeless Joe Jackson. They would finish the season atop the American League at 88 and 52. Shoeless Joe led the team with a batting average of 351, Eddie Seacott an ERA of 1.82. They would then face off against the National League champion Cincinnati Reds, a team that came out of nowhere to win a franchise-best 96 games. Game one saw Seacott face off against the relatively inexperienced Dutch Ruther. After three innings, the score was tied at one apiece. 
But when the fourth inning came around, Seacott fell apart, giving up five runs to put the White Sox in a 6-1 hole. They would eventually lose the game 9-1. A similar story took place in game two, when the usually dominant Lefty Williams gave up the first four runs of the game, en route to a 4-2 loss and a 2-0 series deficit. The Reds would go on to win three of the next six games, giving them their first ever World Series title. But was this win earned? Did the White Sox lose the World Series on purpose? The best consensus right now, uh, given all the best available research that we have, is that the fix was called off possibly as early as game two um, and that the rest of the World Series might have been played on the level. But without you know, actual confessions from the players on exactly what happened. And no one involved knows the full story. There are, you know, nine versions of the story from the eight men out. So, you know, we don't exactly know how it all happened and we probably never will because everybody involved is dead now. But what we do know is that uh, there were conflicting versions of the fix. There were multiple payoffs for multiple groups of gamblers. Nobody really knew what all was going on. It was very complex uh, plot that kind of fell apart uh, very, very quickly. D.B. Sweeney, who plays the part of Shoeless Joe Jackson in the film, recalls meeting one of the players from that Cincinnati team while filming. We shot part of the film where the train scenes are that was at a railroad museum in Kentucky, and Ed Roush was the center fielder for the Cincinnati Reds. Ed Roush, by the way, the only member of that Reds team who would go on to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he showed up. He was about 90 years old. He shows up on the set. And he was adamant that they only tried to lose one game. And I had never thought of it from this point of view, but the Cincinnati Reds lose their championship too if the White Sox didn't try to win. So Ed Roush, almost on his deathbed, comes to the set to be like, oh, they only lost one game on purpose. They were trying to win every other damn game. You know, and he's like banging his cane. You know, these guys, we don't know any of the guys' names on the Cincinnati Reds unless you're a baseball historian. And they were a great team. Now, just to clarify, when Sweeney mentions that the Reds lost their championship because of the scandal, he means it in a more figurative sense, more than a literal one. The 1919 title is still on the books and still counts. So when Sweeney, who was a good baseball player in his own right, and I know this firsthand because I played softball with him for a number of years, when he was first approached to potentially star in the film, didn't know a lot about the Black Sox scandal. But after reading Elliot Asinoff's 1963 book on which the film is based, he was desperate to meet the director, John Sayles and convinced Sales that he was right for the part. He and I met in a coffee shop on 12th Avenue and 42nd Street, and he was hiding outside by the dumpster watching me approach. And I guess he, he was going to hire the actors based on if they walk like ballplayers. So I guess I passed the test because he said I was immediately hired. And we sat down, had uh, you know, a ham sandwich or whatever, and uh, he asked me who my favorite player of all time was. And I said, uh, I said, well, living, it's Dwight Evans. And I said, dead, it's Roberto Clemente because I was a right fielder. And, and so... He, he said he loved that answer. And, and we talked about how it would be awesome to try to find the grace of those two players in the way Shoeless Joe Jackson moved. So that we were right on the right same page right away. Despite the connection, there was one big problem that they would have to overcome if Sweeney was to take this role. Sweeney, unlike Shoeless Joe, batted right, not left. I said, can you do what, we, what they did in Pride of the Yankees? Because Gary Cooper was a terrible athlete. And he could barely bat right-handed. So they reversed the Yankees logo on his shirt and they had him bat righty and run to third base. 
and then they flip the negative in post-production. So that's incredibly expensive because all the advertising along the wall has to be done two ways. So he immediately said, no, if you can't do it, you just bat right-handed. Nobody will know the difference. And I was like, I got to learn it. And we, so we had six months before filming and I just dove into it. And uh, I spent those last two months of the six months uh, traveling with the Kenosha twins in the Midwest league. You know, it was just a great, great experience. So Sweeney worked and worked until he was just as proficient batting lefty as he was from the right. The only problem is much of that work came when he was a member of our softball team and it didn't start great. Trust me, it led to a lot of outs. There was a lot of frustration amongst his teammates, but in his words, it was for the work. It was for his craft. So we had to deal with it. There's even a scene in the film that was specifically created by sales to showcase Sweeney's newfound talent. He wanted to create a shot where I could hit a triple with no cuts so that when you meet the character Shoeless Joe, I start out in a close-up at home plate, and they had dolly tracks all the way up to third base, and I end up in a close-up as I slide into third. So you think about all the things that have to go right. Like, I have to hit the ball off the wall in right center. The outfielder has to catch it, hit the cutoff. The cutoff has to get into the third on a good throw. So on the third play, I hit the perfect ball. Like, the ball's got to be middle in, just on the, down, on the lower side. And Ken Berry, our baseball announce, uh, advisor, is throwing it and then running out of the way because none of the pitchers could hit that spot. I hit it off the wall, bounces once, the right fielder picks it up, misses the cutoff. And again, with no CGI, they can't make that work. So that was take three or take four. I was like, ah. Oh. So then we tried a million things kept going wrong. I couldn't hit it right in this zone where I had to hit it off the wall in right center, you know, in a real ballpark. So it was a real poke. And then finally on about take 22, we got it. And so I see the movie and I'm sort of like, man, I look exhausted because <laughs> I'd done 22 takes of running around the bases. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think the average viewer would notice that. But it's, I'm real proud of that piece of uh, filmmaking because it took a unique set of skills to do it. Sweeney was not only able to capture the athletic prowess of Shoeless Joe, but also his essence as a person. After all, the movie was as much about character as it was a baseball film. Once the film was released, it received a lot of praise from those in the baseball community, including Jacob Pomerenke. Eight Man Out is uh, very entertaining. The cast, the ensemble cast, the cinematography of that film, the score, all of it is extremely compelling. And it's a really fun movie. A fun movie indeed, but it was unfortunately met with modest box office numbers. It made only $1.1 million across the opening weekend, and that ranked its 17th behind films like Die Hard, A Fish Called Wanda, and the number one movie that weekend, remember, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Not one, two, or three, but four. But that didn't matter to Jacob. It's one of the better baseball movies ever made. Um, it's just, you know, not historically accurate. That's all. So let's dig into some of these inaccuracies. The first, and arguably the most important for the setup of the film, is this portrayal of White Sox owner Charles Comiskey, played by Clifton James. Eight Men Out shows Comiskey as a miser, a cheapskate, a man who underpaid his employees to the point of inspiring illegal activity. The portrayal of Charles Comiskey is one of the biggest myths surrounding the Black Sox scandal. And we've done a lot of new research with the salary information that we now have. We have contract cards at the Baseball Hall of Fame to show that the 1919 White Sox were one of the highest paid teams in baseball, not the lowest paid team uh, as they are often portrayed to be. In fact, the 1919 Chicago White Sox had the second highest payroll in the major leagues. Guys like Eddie Collins, Ray Shaw, Buck Weaver, and Eddie Seacott were all close to or at the top of the pay scale for their positions. In addition to this, Comiskey actually knew what his players were up to. 
But rather than expose them and risk breaking up a championship team, he decided to stay quiet. He even re-signed some of those responsible, including Happy Felch, Swede Risberg, Lefty Williams, and Shoeless Joe to bigger contracts for the following season before they were permanently banned. Without portraying Comiskey as a cheap owner, however, there's no antagonist. And without an antagonist, you know Hollywood, there's no movie. The same goes for the relationship between the players and the gamblers, played by Christopher Lloyd. And who doesn't love Christopher Lloyd in everything that he does, most specifically Back to the Future and Taxi, and Richard Edson. That's one of the other big myths about this scandal is that uh, the players were not seduced by the gamblers. Um, the players were the ones who initiated this fix. Um, it was Eddie Seacott and Chick Gandall who approached the gamblers and said, hey, you know, we've got some other teammates who might be interested. And, uh, you know, can you uh, put up some money to help us uh, fix this World Series? So that uh, goes against the grain of what many of us grew up believing about this scandal is that the players were kind of duped and they were innocent, uh, you know, kind of dumb country ball players who didn't know what they were doing. And the reality is they were involved in gambling and betting just like everybody else in the game, including front office executives. And so they all knew what was going on. They all knew what the score was. And, you know, they just saw a chance to take some easy money and get away with it. And they almost did. This went for Shoeless Joe as well. The generational star outfielder is portrayed in the film as a kind of slow, illiterate mill worker from a small town, Greenville, South Carolina. Now, while it was true that Shoeless Joe couldn't read or write, that was the case for most people from the South in 1919. And by most accounts, Shoeless Joe was a pretty sharp guy. D.B. Sweeney. They wanted it to be that he had no idea what he was signing. He's just going along. They had him, they, you know, there was one account that he went in there drunk, uh, that he didn't know what he, that he said, the White Sox said, trust us, we'll take care of you. The reality is he did know what he was doing. And, you know, he was involved. He did accept the money. That is something that, uh, you know, we know to be true from his own confession. You know, he, he never denied accepting a bri the bribe money from the gamblers. So he was involved in the fix. The biggest question about Shoeless Joe Jackson has always been, did he participate in the fix on the field? Did he play poorly? And there's a lot of opinions and a lot of debate over the last hundred years um, about Shoeless Joe's performance on the field. But, you know, the numbers don't lie. He did hit better than anybody else in the World Series. He did hit the only home run in the World Series. You know, I mean, everybody talks about he hit 375. He had six. I think they had 20 runs in the series. He drove in six of them. But, uh, you know, three of those runs he drove in when they were losing 10 to one. So, you know, it's it's a little bit. And, and he got a bunch of hits where there was nobody on base. He got thrown out stealing in a situation where that could have turned out to be a big run. You know, he, he short legged a few balls in the outfield. You know, they were pretty strict on the scoring in those days because the gloves are so small that if you didn't touch it, it couldn't be an error. So a guy, you know, they didn't have high depth video watching the guy play left field. You just get yourself a late start, let it drop. And so I think that he was guilty. I don't know that he was guilty of, of cheating every game, but he certainly cheated for a significant amount of the series. The whole idea that he was this poor Southern victim is that's just kind of a mythology that baseball created so that they didn't have to also ban Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb, of course, the Hall of Fame outfielder who played for the Tigers for 22 years. He was accused of fixing a series against Cleveland in the last week of the 1919 season by teammate Dutch Leonard. As Sweeney alluded to there, he would avoid any punishment. Kid Gleason, the White Sox manager played by John Mahoney, also wasn't as naive as the film portrayed. He had been in professional baseball since 1888 when he was a pitcher with the Philadelphia Quakers, soon to be known as the Phillies. He was a well-seasoned, uh, experienced baseball man. He could tell that something was wrong, you know, but he didn't have definitive proof. 
And even though he threatened his players during the World Series, you know, talking about these rumors and what was going on, uh, trying to get them to shape up, you know, he really didn't say anything publicly about it. He didn't do anything else. And ultimately what ended up happening is a lot of people in management tried to end up covering it up just like many other baseball scandals had been covered up uh, in the years prior to 1919. But this one was found out, the legal system got involved, and that's one of the big reasons why we know about the Black Sox scandal and not necessarily about some of the other fixed games and the fixed possibly World Series uh, in that era. Now, here's what the film did get right. Star shortstop Buck Weaver's involvement in the scandal. In the film, Weaver, played by John Cusack, wants nothing to do with the fix. All he wants to do is win. Jacob Pomerinke explains the extent of Weaver's involvement. Buck Weaver would tell you to the end of his life that he had no involvement whatsoever in the Black Sox scandal and that he played his best on the field and that he never took a dime. Um, and two of those three things are true. He did play his best. No one ever disputed that. And he did not take any bribe money. No one ever disputed that uh, as well. But he was involved in the scandal. He did attend multiple meetings, both before and during the world, uh, during the uh, start of the World Series. And, you know, he was involved. He did know uh, what was going on. He knew who was involved. The problem for Buck Weaver, of course, is that who could he tell that didn't already know? His manager, Kid Gleason, knew what was going on. His owner, Charles Comiskey, knew what was going on as early as game one. You know, this was one of the worst kept secrets in baseball. Everybody knew that the White Sox were fixing the World Series. So Buck Weaver really didn't have anybody to tell. A lot of people in baseball high up uh, were involved in trying to cover up this scandal for almost a whole season afterwards in 1920. And so, you know, Buck Weaver was really kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. This leads us to one of the most dramatic scenes in the film, the courtroom scene, where the eight men, including Shoeless Joe and Buck Weaver, stand on trial for their involvement in the scandal. During the scene, we see John Cusack, as Buck Weaver stand up and demand a separate trial. He pleads with the judge, saying the fact that he never took a penny hasn't been brought up once. He tells the judge he had 327 in the series and didn't make a single error, and that he's being charged with a conspiracy he had nothing to do with. During the scene, we also find the confessions that the players had signed were stolen, and ultimately, the players are found not guilty. So how accurate was all of this? Unfortunately, it never happened at all. There was uh, a, a petty theft of some court records, but those were recreated by the court stenographer very, very quickly. My fellow Sabre author, uh, Bill Lamb, has done a lot of research on the legal documents and the legal proceedings involved in the Black Sox scandal. And, you know, he's shown, he was a former prosecutor himself, uh, he has shown that, you know, there's no way that any, any of this could have happened. Um, it was all reported in the newspapers exactly uh, how this all went down and how the players' confessions were recreated by the stenographer and read right back into the record. This was all reported accurately at the time. And so the idea from the movie decades later that this was a dramatic scene, that this is the reason that the Black Sox players were acquitted at trial, none of that holds up to, to research and to modern scrutiny. Despite this specific moment never occurring in real life, the players were ultimately acquitted of any wrongdoing. However, Commissioner Landis was still determined to make a point, and he banned all eight men, including Buck Weaver, from baseball forever. So Buck Weaver was kind of held up as, you know, the, the poster child for uh, this new era that we're not going to tolerate uh, this type of corruption anymore. And, you know, it really was the most effective punishment that baseball could have had. Um, was by banning Buck Weaver. Uh, they told everybody that even if you play your best, even if you don't take any money, 
we can still kick you out of the game and uh, deny you a chance to uh, do what you love. And so, you know, Buck Weaver's punishment was a very harsh one, uh, but also a very effective one. No member of the Black Sox scandal would ever be eligible for induction into baseball's Hall of Fame, a subject that today is hotly debated, especially when it comes to shoeless Joe Jackson. And I know Sweeney referenced it earlier in the podcast, how some of the hits in that World Series came at times that weren't important, that he may have made some mistakes in the outfield. But when it was all said and done, he batted 375. And even if we're going to assume that he played a role in that World Series, he's one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And I've always said, should be recognized in the Hall of Fame. It's been 34 years since Eight Men Out was released. It may not have the same cultural cachet as Bull Durham, but it's still a great piece of cinema that portrays an incredibly important moment in baseball history for any baseball fan. You know, and it it holds up well. It's just, it's fun to watch. It's entertaining. You know, the athletes uh, make the baseball believable because that's not, that's usually what sinks most baseball movies, right? But in this movie, the baseball looks terrific. And and that's true going to, you know, even the uniforms and the fields and everything else. I watched the movie with Warren Spahn and these guys would all like punch me in the arm in the middle of it. And they'd be like, way to go, kid. Lou Brock. Don Gullet. I just, I mean, a Hall of Fame collection of people that I got to sit in a movie theater and watch this thing with and get their approval. A nod of respect from a group of Hall of Famers to the story of the men who would never become their colleagues. Coming up next week on The Replay, sports on the big screen. Hardly anybody saw it in the theater. I don't know. It became a word of mouth thing through video and then DVD and 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 it became a term popular culture. You know, someone's a Rudy and you, no one could ever expect that. I didn't see that coming. The replay sports on the big screen is part of the Sirius XM sports podcast network. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, our sound designer, Robert Moore, and SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.